0: <laughs> so what's a podcast? Is
1: oh, did you just come is out that another like fishing?
0: Coma? No, I think no, so. not,
1: not not like fishing. So so we're on the internet. Do you know what the internet is, Calvin?
0: Yeah, it's it's a connected network of nets.
1: Sure, it's a yeah. Let's and, think of it like that. It's like a it's a web, you know, like a like a spider's web. You know, spiders, right? Yeah, yeah. Why I'm not? a
0: bi- I'm a big fan of spiders.
1: Cool. It is. I mean, it is spider season, as we like to call it here. There's actually we have uh, three spiders living outside our apartment right now. They're right in the doorway. We have them all hanging around. We named them after the Marx Brothers.
0: Oh, you have happy yes. spider season, <laughs> as people like to say.
1: Yes, that's a very common way of saying things about October. We call this spider season, yeah. just like everyone does. That is a thing.
0: Uh, you say, "I hope the I hope the spider crawls up your back at night and." And you wake up with webs on your face. That's that's a common greeting out oh, here. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's actually a tradition as well for you know, we go around and we slap people on the back and to, to ward off the spiders. You know, that's we give true. them a hard yeah. slap on the back. That's tradition for spider season.
0: And then you, you shake hands so you could feel the web and exchange webs with other people.
1: Yes. And sometimes we grow additional legs at the end of the month.
0: It would be it would be nice actually. I could use another leg right now. Yeah,
1: no kidding. You're still waiting on surgery, aren't you?
0: Yeah, it's American healthcare, right? You have to wait a few weeks for even an MRI. It seems
1: that's funny because that's the that's the biggest complaint you always see in. Uh, comparison to like universal healthcare or whatever the option is it's like oh in canada you have to wait weeks you can't get service right away it's like man i can't get service right away here <laughs> yeah,
0: you can't get anything here so what does it matter it doesn't really matter <laughs> but just think if i were a spider i'd really have a leg up on the competition
1: yeah can spiders grow back legs like are they're like lizards like that as well i don't recall
0: i don't think they are i don't think i think they're just gone
1: Ah, well at least you have 8 of them in case you lose one like I think you could yeah. function much better with 7 legs yeah I agree just, yeah. I feel like you I could
0: probably w- even lose 2 of them and be fine
1: probably you could go a lot it's like how cats have 9 lives but instead you have 8 legs
0: yeah it cats would be are nice also,
1: yeah, cats are also seasonal it's also cat season as yeah. long as the cat is black have you seen any black cats this season
0: no I've been unlucky I I think you're supposed to see them right
1: uh, it's one of those Either It's it's unlucky to see them Or it's lucky to see them On Halloween One of those, I don't know It's There is something with luck in cats And you either do or do not want to see them okay. And that's not very helpful
0: So we recommend you either do or do not Go look for black cats And you might or might not be lucky Bingo This show's going really well, should we start?
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's get on with it Now that we got all our seasonal greetings out of the way
0: yeah. Um, happy Hanukkah. Uh, should we just cover it for the rest of the year? Uh, happy 4th. It's, it's, uh,
1: it's Columbus Day. Happy Columbus Day. Oh, did you, did uh, you have Columbus a lot of Day fun
0: celebrating America? and Yes, I did. I,
1: yes, I went around to all the brown people I knew and asked them where I was.
0: Oh, really? That, that, that's that's nice. how you
1: celebrate. That's how you celebrate Columbus Day. You You show up to places you're unwelcome and you just barge in and assert your dominance. That's what you do.
0: Happy Pilgrim Dominance Day, (laughs) as we like to say.
1: Yes. Sometimes I call it Genocide Day. (laughs) Stark. Well, I mean, that's American history for you.
0: Welcome to the Toy Geek Cast, this is Calvin. And David here. We have a jam-packed show full of horrors and box office successes. We've got Parasite, Gemini Man, Adam's Family, Breaking Bad, and so much more. What do we have feature-wise?
1: Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Invisible Man, and the Bride herself. We're talking Universal Monsters today. Specifically that first run between 1931 and 1935. Yeah, let's just start in the, the box office new stuff, because there's actually a lot of new stuff this week. We're getting into uh, the season of good good films, finally, after waiting ten months.
0: In Parasite's a big film, we have double coverage already on the ice. This is our third coverage this week. We have a article from Hamid and Laura that are worth checking out.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's actually surprising how well the film is been doing despite how uh, little uh, it's it's out right now there's no showings near me so i'm glad that our, our staff members were able to get to see it
0: yeah it's nice to do that legally um, <laughs> so it's good that uh, parasite's doing so well because i feel like we have a good run of foreign films and i feel like it's kind of coming back the way that it was like pre-90s um,
1: I, I think it kind of has to because uh, American filmmaking is, is much more stale right now from an artistic hmm. standpoint, and so there's so much more going on in the rest of the world. I mean, we've seen just lately that, you know, there was, uh, you know, what, we had a Roma in the, the Oscar contenders last year, which was, you know, a Mexican film, and then we had, uh, well, we um, had Shoplifters, a, as, yeah, Shoplifters we had a, and Burning were big last year.
0: Yeah, we had Burning in our list. That's
1: yeah. And I know lots of people like shoplifters as well. Just yeah. one from Japan. And just in general, you know, uh, and especially with Ong, uh, Bong Juno here, he's major Korean director and South Korean filmmaking in general has been on, you know, super rise since like the, the 2000s, I'd say.
0: Yeah. I mean, Asian films, the only one that's really boomed since the 90s, right? Every other kind of foreign films kind of deteriorated a little bit with the rise of more like uh, blockbuster pictures and rising budgets, but uh the Asian films are doing very well in cultivating their own uh decent sized budget movies and uh I don't know, I think uh I think Parasite might be my favorite Korean movie.
1: That's interesting. Uh you know, I like uh I I like Bonjung ho a lot as well. Uh you know, I recently have caught up with been I'm very excited here for Parasite, but I do think I, I favor uh Chan Book Park a, just a tiny bit more at the moment. For what, what movie? Oh, you know, I I, I loved old the uh, Handmaiden a lot when that came out. That was sure. really great to check out. Very, you know, big, uh, fantastical film. But Old Boy has just kind of been the staple. That's kind of what got me into Korean cinema to begin with. And I think there there's a lot of people who are kind of flipping on it lately. Like they're coming around and be like, oh, maybe it wasn't as good as we thought in 2003, mm-hmm. you know, or whenever. But I think it's still fantastic and one of my favorites I've seen.
0: Just that whole trilogy seems pretty inspiring. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's good, though. I think Parasite will be talked about for many years to come. I just have a feeling it's a film people will look back on 20 years and be like, yeah, that's what uh, 2019 looked like. Ho-
1: hopefully. Hopefully we'll forget all of the somewhat garbage we oh. had to sift
0: through to get here. <laughs> you, you never remember that stuff anyway. You only remember the stuff that matters, so.
1: People are going to be like, what was Green Book last year? Why did that win?
0: I don't even think we'll be talking about it. It'll be like Driving Miss Daisy. It'll just come up as like a joke in conversation. Effectively, yes, I believe that will be the case. Uh, But uh, I really like Parasite. I'm very sure it's going to make a push for the foreign Oscar. We don't know yet if it'll get inclusion in the real thing.
1: It seems like uh, it might. I don't know. There's not. There's not a whole lot of competition from my vantage point here. But it's not. You know, the first or last time that something's going to get nominated for best picture that's a foreign language like that. You know, that's been happening for quite some time. Even last year with Roma, you know, we got that in, and that was surprisingly because it was a Netflix film that they actually let that in.
0: Um, Yeah, I feel like it does have a little bit of competition even within the streaming services. We also have like a a few. uh, a couple french films we had the lame is and the uh, portrait of the girl on fire and um there's a lot of other good foreign films lately haven't there been
1: uh, i believe so yeah um what we had interesting uh horror film recently that came to shutter that i got to check out that was uh, one cut of the dead it's not like uh super innovative or anything but it's fun it's showing i think like i think people are a lot more open to a lot of foreign stuff now we also had a uh, similar in the same vein uh tigers are not afraid come to shutter as well that you know people can check out
0: yeah it's really fantastic um i would say that uh what we have next we have gemini man that's uh i don't i don't know what happened because uh there's <laughs> not one theater in america that shows it in its intended form
1: Ah, uh, yeah it's ang lee has had an interesting
0: trajectory i'll say that so the the projection was that they wanted it to be uh 120 frames per second in their high frame rate and then in 3d and in 4k but the best you could do is 120 2k and 3d in america so that's too bad Are they,
1: do we know if they're doing it outside of america anywhere
0: i think there's at least uh, i think they're doing it in asia somewhere there's some place there's that that's doing it in their intention mm-hmm. i'm wondering if they did this
1: with his last film as well because i did read in here that uh billy lynn's long halftime walk was also filmed at the same frame rate there
0: so the thing with that is there wasn't very many scenes that really benefited from that like uh, you don't really need that when people are talking or it's a dramatic moment but uh, in gemini man it has some of the cleanest 3d action i've ever seen there's some neat stuff going underwater and um there's a replica of will smith uh, i think our problem with cgi is that the frame rate will never um Make it look like they're an actual person because it can't keep up with the, with the features and the expressions and how quickly our face moves. So something about having that sped up, even at sixty frames per second, really helps that out.
1: Hmm. Well, and it's unfortunate that nobody could really see it at one hundred and twenty frames properly. I know you didn't
0: get the chance to, right? No, I got it at half, so it was sixty, yeah. uh, which is still double any other movie and still right. very noticeable.
1: Usual frame rate for movies is somewhere between twenty four and thirty. Um, you know, frame rate something you can mess with very easily and get different effects. And uh, it's not something that's discussed uh, a lot in films, which I think is interesting.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it ends up being a more video gamey thing, right? Because you want and certainly the, you want the action to match controls and be able to control it quickly. But that, I, that's it, kind it, of
1: where the point of contention is here with the high frame rate, the sixty frames, because that's what mm-hmm. a lot of modern video games are running at now, right?
0: Yeah, since Doom, I think it's been trending that way to where uh, the ideal video game is at least 60. Um, and frames matter a lot more in video games, of course, but uh, they're also going to matter a lot more if we go full CGI, which I think is like what this has conceptualized for us. Um,
1: it's kind of inevitable, especially with all the Disney stuff pushing similar you know, terrain there.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure that once we have projectors that can handle it, this is probably the future of movies. I I don't think any TVs that are out currently could even handle, um, you know, the double frame rate of this. (laughs) I don't know what they would do. Um, I I think that uh, it has the cleanest bike chase that I've seen. Uh, Even though it's two Will Smiths, it's full of tension, and he uses the bike to, like, jump on a car, and then it falls in a really interesting way that... um, you could actually see the the difference in the frame rate and just how clean and lifelike that that movement is.
1: Would you say it was a better bike chase than the one we saw earlier this year in John Wick Three? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's I think it's one of the best action scenes I've seen. It's, a, it's it looks a little bit rubbery on the character models, but that's unavoidable. So,
1: mm-hmm. well, what would you think of the film outside of the technical specs?
0: Uh, I thought it was terrible. I thought the script was insipid. (laughs) I don't think anyone's ever read it. I think Will Smith is not very good. Um, I think it's still the best thing he's done. I think. uh, Like the best
1: thing he's done in total in his whole career? I think it might be. <laughs> oh my god! That's... What would
0: you What would you put up? No, it's not as good as like Bad Boys, right? I don't know.
1: Maybe yeah. Like, what about Men in Black? Men in Black's a classic, and that still works. It works because of Will Smith is one of the things. So that's the that's the thing when when we're kind of greeting we're greeting on a Will Smith curve here because Will Smith is right. one thing, and that's and that's it, and yeah. it's getting kind of tiresome lately like i think it really kind of jumped the shark with like suicide squad here we're like all right we're, we're pretty much done with will smith he's not doing so it anymore <laughs>
0: what if you had that one thing but there were two will smiths doing it
1: oh that just sounds twice as exhausting
0: <laughs> i think it's a horrible misuse of uh, mary elizabeth winstead as well who is very capable and just gets to be kind of a love interest without any other writing on it and uh i mean she has a good scene where she has to track the other um they're in like a catacomb and she has to track fake will smith And uh she might take him out if he does the wrong thing in in their scenario um but uh uh it's it's such a boring thriller too um one saving grace clive owen's a pretty good bad guy
1: that's that's good clive owen's uh reliable it's interesting because i've seen uh, you know doing a little bit of reading i've seen that this film's been floating around as a script since like the 90s yes yeah, it is never good that's never a good thing
0: <laughs> i still don't think anyone's read the script i think they just made a movie i, I uh, can't know, believe how bad the script is the readings are the readings are like if you just say a line and there's another line behind it but you have no punctuation in it it's so weird
1: I don't know, it, doesn't, it never looked from the trailers to be anything short of the most generic action movie I've ever heard of. Like, this sounds like something straight out of the 90s, of course. You know, it's it's like, what, an inferior face-off in every regard?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly what it is. Uh, um, Benedict Wong also plays his friend. He's fun. Um, I don't really have a lot more on Gemini Man, but we do have the review of mine going up next week on the site
1: yeah and so you'll you'll get to see what you think there as far as you know i think your review is good because as you did here you highlight a lot of the technical accomplishment that's going on there as well as the the film's total failure (laughs) on a entertainment level (laughs)
0: so this bad movie just like lion king another bad movie is that they're the future of movies i think as far as what i've seen this year i think gemini gemini man lion king and irishman are going to be the future of where we're going
1: I wonder if there's any other history like Irishman obviously exception there because we, yeah. we expect that one to be a good but like of of huge leaps forward in technology being with terrible films because like I guess you could say the the matrix was another huge benchmark in terms of special effects but nobody considers that a bad film no, no sane no. person
0: anyway no um yeah I can't I can't think of any I know innovation's so hard that I think I think sometimes it happens before the thing we recognize and then we don't really appreciate that thing like i don't think we're going to look back at as at gemini man as like the the marker for hfr right well history
1: history usually you know records the one who popularizes something and not the one who invents it necessarily and that's that's probably what we're going to see but this podcast can serve as an archive of the, the gemini man leading the pack in the most terribly
0: uninspired way possible god but maybe go see it because <laughs> i mean maybe not you but if you're interested in tech in the way that i am and and you're interested in frame rates god it the first 10 minutes i was super impressed i i couldn't believe how good the 3d looked that's good
1: uh it did horribly flop though it was oh, it? oh yeah totally can you imagine oh, how much this movie cost Let's let's actually see. Let's pull up some numbers here because it made about twenty million this opening weekend. Not good.
0: No, on a budget of drum roll, one hundred thirty-eight million. I'm guessing that one bike scene I was talking about cost about forty million. So I'm guessing that's not a good thing. mm Hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't imagine this will do better, and, and it didn't even crack, you know, the top spot here. Joker no. held on to the top spot for this weekend, and and Gemini Man came in third. Still, it it didn't even get below our next film here, which is uh, the new Ad- animated Adams Family.
0: That's <laughs> all I got. <laughs> um, you, you so you wouldn't saw
1: this too though, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw it with my family and uh, Ezra and Jess. You know, it's a fun movie. I think it's made for kids. It doesn't have any real depth in it. Um, y- I mean, you like The Addams Family, right? It's
1: Who doesn't like The Addams Family? Whether you're a fan of, like, the original television series or the great, my personal favorites, the, uh, you know, Raul Julia uh, mm-hmm. ones. Those those two movies are really fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are fun because, well, I like the first one because it's like the, the Uncle Fester story, which is a weird way to take the first movie of a franchise. Right. Um, I think what I like about this one, though, it get it gets one thing right. It gets that it's a Wednesday story, so that's nice.
1: Yeah, Wednesday has always kind of been one of the standouts of the family. Uh, th- they all kind of stand out in their own interesting, unique ways. Yeah. I think especially in the first film, like I said, I mean, I introduced as Raoul Julia's Adam's Family because he's really, mm-hmm. he's the shining star there in many ways. But Christina Ricci there, she's also very great and makes Wednesday stand out. If you don't make Wednesday stand out in your Adam's Family movie, you're failing.
0: Yeah. I think Wednesday is the most relatable character. That's how I feel every day.
1: As, as a you know cynical adult, I think we all do relate to Wednesday in many ways.
0: <laughs> and she's played by uh, Chloe Grace Moretz here, who is really good as her. And. I like the idea that she's going into like a preppy school for the first time. Her family have never let her leave the uh, little plantation they have, and she's getting to go to junior high for the first time, and she tries to turn a preppy girl goth, and there's like a fallout between her parents who remodel homes and the Adams family who have the most atrocious home in the neighborhood.
1: I'm actually looking because you made me think about it here. The cast is actually pretty great, yeah. especially for the initial family. Oscar Isaac as Gomez is great. Charlie yeah. Theron as Morticia. Uh, I don't know about Finn Wolfhard as Pugsley so much. but no, not uh, good. It's okay. But what the hell is Snoop Dogg doing in here? So he
0: plays it. So he, <laughs> it, it uh, plays the uh, "Drop It Like It Like It's Hot" song, and you get this limo coming up, and then it comes out with the pit with a pimp cane <laughs> and i think he makes like four noises the entire movie i i think it's such a weird thing i think they did it so they could get his song in there
1: it's funny oh i see uh how'd i skip over this one nick kroll is uncle fester that's very cool. funny yeah that's interesting that's good uh so i'm
0: um, Surprise for me is that it was uh it was lurch who kind of won the won the picture for me um and you see we have uh, Conrad Vernon doing, like, four of the voices there. Um, and Lurch ends up... I like his side story in here that they pick him up from a mental institution. And he plays through a bunch of uh, sappy, sentimental songs. And, you know, like the Adams Family theme song. Um, I, I think he's just a good addition and he's really funny in this.
1: Hmm. Uh, I hope the series kind of takes off more, even if I'm not personally going to go check it out. Just because... You know, I think The Addams Family is such a kind of timeless concept. It's very, you know, easy to adapt to any generation. And to have a new one for here, I think, is, you know, just delightful. I love that.
0: I'd be hopeful that they'd be able to get some of this cast together, because I don't think it's a good movie, I should also say. I think it's a pretty average-looking movie, and um, I don't know. It doesn't stand up to those old movies. I'm just glad it exists.
1: Yeah, the ratings aren't high for it. Even beyond your own criticisms here, it's it's not faring well. Unlike IMDb, which is disappointing, but you know it's a you know it's just kind of I think part of it has to do with the interesting animation choices here. Yeah. They went for the, more of the original uh, drawing style of uh, Charles Adams that he did yeah. there. And I don't think which, it
0: always reads that way. Um, I think it, I think people could be confused. and I mean, the faces definitely look like it. The body types do, but I don't know if people will read that.
1: Well, it still has a very rubbery, you know, modern animation look, which I don't think pairs with it terribly well. I think that's the problem. If you did this more in a traditional hand-styled animation, you had more shading going on with it, I think it would look much better.
0: I mean, it kind of just looks like a, a low-res movie version of what DreamWorks are doing every other month now So, mm-hmm.
1: like, like I, I would compare this to like I think the uh, Hotel Transylvania films capture the, the the style and spirit of this kind of movie better just by looking at the pictures here
0: oh yeah I, I, I totally have that thought that uh, I would rather just be watching a Hotel Transylvania 4 right now
1: mhm alright well we got one more movie uh, you gotta sell me on this cause I've not gotten to check it out yet uh, though I want to, which is uh, El Camino. I'm
0: trying sure to be very careful since you haven't, and maybe our listeners haven't. Um,
1: I've, I've not. I, I especially don't want spoilers here because I w- I have been a big fan of Breaking Bad. I just don't want to interrupt my horror mojo right now to watch it.
0: Have, <laughs> the, you, don't, have you seen all of Breaking Bad?
1: Of course, I've seen it many times through. Uh, I, I don't watch lots of TV, and actually I was late to the game on... Uh, Breaking Bad because I do this thing where if people just constantly tell me to watch this show because of how great it is, I will vehemently ignore it because Hipster. I'm tired of hearing about it. No, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. I get frustrated. Like, the same thing happened with Walking Dead. Everyone, when Walking Dead came out, like, you gotta check out Walking Dead. It's the best thing ever. I'm like, I don't
0: no, you don't. care.
1: Leave me alone. But, but Breaking finally, Bad
0: might have deserved, the, deserved some of that did. conversation.
1: It totally did, and I eventually came around to it, and I checked it out. I got to watched the last season live so i got i was caught up by that time and that was very nice to be there for and be part of that conversation
0: um and you get to see the at the oh we'll we'll just stick around there at the ending of breaking bad he drives off into the sunset right and we get it we get to see maybe something happens or we don't know there's a tension he's probably going to get caught either way right but it's it's an ambiguous
1: it's an ambiguous ending for Jesse in the series, but it's a very relieving and optimistic one. Ultimately this idea that he has escaped and everything that has kind of caused him this absolute misery and horridness for the last season of the show is, is gone and he can live his own life. And uh, the ambiguity of it was nice because it allows you to th- make your own assumptions about the character. So that's, I think why some people were tepid going into this, this next film here, this, uh, continuation. Yeah,
0: I think it's fair. Um, uh, I- uh, how do I not spoil anything? It plays a lot more like a continuation, a uh, elongated episode, and one that I'd say is pretty much uh, middle high tier for the series. Um, uh, how do I not spoil it? We have we have like uh, returning characters like Todd and Badger, Skinny Pete, and of course, unfortunately, uh, Robert Forster died this week, so uh, he's in there doing a really good job.
1: That was that was some very sad news, and this is kind of a. Uh uh incredible that it that it happened on the you know this was released on the day he died i was i was so moved seeing this outpour especially on twitter so so many so many people showing this love for robert forrester who was really uh it seems like an underutilized or underappreciated actor and to see him like i haven't seen that much outcry and you know uh love for an actor Uh, of any caliber all maybe for the past couple years it's been quite some time since I've seen so much love and affection so to see that it really warmed my heart seeing everyone show their love for Robert Forrester like that I thought it was I thought it was
0: so poetic that it came out just on that day too and that it feels like a farewell and he has a really special part in it I always thought his character in Breaking Bad was about the best use of his ability
1: he He kind of stood out. He was this nice little character in the last season there. and you know, he did what Robert Forster does he He gives these bit characters some really great <laughs> um you know, pathos to them, some you know yeah. wiseness and interest. you know he he's absolutely wonderful person in everything he is. He brightens every movie he's, he's ever been in.
0: Well, this is pretty early, so I'll say it. Jesse goes to him. He's like, "You're the guy who does the thing, right? You got the van. I saw the van when I was out back before." He's, yeah. you know, he's just like playing, him. he's like, "No, uh, just, uh, just sell, sell these backwards. vacuums here." <laughs> yeah, and he, the whole scene just plays out like a very funny bit about him just doing the vacuums. And Jesse took uh, yeah. so He throws out like twenty three thousand dollars on the table.
1: I feel, I feel that's not too much of a spoiler because that's exactly yeah. what I think would be the first thing that happens because where else do you go? He's the guy who hit a Walt away in the last season. It makes perfect sense for him to do that. It's mostly like the other characters. Like, I don't want you to tell me if Walt shows up or anything like that because I've, I heard rumors about it when, you know, people around the set and everything, but I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I think it... <laughs> how do I talk around that? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but uh, I think it's, it's interesting it, that uh, it it felt like Walter's story was definitely complete and this is just going to be more about Jesse because I think he, di- he didn't really get the send off and he was always a kind of reactionary character so he reacts to what other people do and it's nice to have at least one long episode of the show uh, where it feels like it's just him.
1: Look, my big thing is that I hope this opens doors for Aaron Paul instead of pigeonholing him again because that's, that's something we talked about before I think leading up here is that Aaron Paul has had a non-existent career outside of Bojack after Breaking Bad here.
0: It looked really bad because he drove off in a car and his next appearance was Need for Speed and then you kind of connect those things.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's that idea. It's a
0: humorous play there. (laughs) I feel bad, though, because he's so good in these. And I think what... I watched a movie uh, just last week with him. Um, I think it's called the. It's going to be maybe a wrong title, "The Parts We Lose" or something, where he plays like a convict that this boy finds out in the snow, and he's really good in it. But uh, I feel like he gets forgotten that uh, he just needs to be a reactive character. He shouldn't be the main character of a story.
1: Yeah, he might just be best as a supporting person. In general, I think that's probably part of that problem with going straight in a Need for Speed like there. So when you come off a big. A property like that, they're gonna want to put you in the starring role there, which may not be what you're best suited for. You <laughs> oh, know, have, if you're if you're a supporting get, actor, own it.
0: We get a we get a bit of Badger and uh, Skinny Pete here too. <laughs> That's good. Um, I've seen
1: I've seen some pictures of them, so yeah, like, like they're in the trailer, aren't they? They are. I think they're in the trailer, so I'm, I don't feel spoiled.
0: Yeah, I'm not trying to say anything that either hasn't been in the news or the trailer. So uh, yeah, I I understand this one's more sensitive than most of our movies.
1: Right. Just just give me like as a final. Thing. Do you give it, like, a Breaking Bad seal of approval? This is worth watching if, as a fan of the show?
0: I'd put it on par with Better Call Saul, at least.
1: Okay. I didn't I didn't finish or keep up with Better Call Saul, but I enjoyed what I did see. Uh, yeah. And this is only two hours, so I can easily commit time to that. And since it's more connected to, to Breaking Bad as opposed to Saul, which is, like, very disconnected, it feels like. It's its own thing.
0: Oh, yeah. It still has that Neo neo-western feeling that breaking bad had and i mean you you watched all breaking bad you need to watch this i think that's all there is to it i think
1: yeah i'll check it out for sure but that it'll probably be after the month here because Mm. i got too much spooky stuff to get to including the many films that we watched in preparation this week
0: yeah uh she's uh speaking of spooky film season as we like to say uh so you watched did you watch dracula too
1: uh, no, so I I've watched many of these already, some multiple times, mm-hmm. but I only rewatched. I only watched the ones that I was had not seen yet and wanted to cover this week. I've been watching the Universal horror films. I've been breaking them up over the years. So like sure. two years back, I first saw Dracula and Frankenstein. Last year, I watched Bride of Frankenstein for like the first time. And this year, I finally caught up with Invisible Man and the Mummy.
0: Um, this year I watched all the ones we're going to discuss, but some of them are repeats, some are not, and. I guess we're going to do the. We want to focus on the 1930s um, versions of the Universal horrors.
1: Yeah, the first run there, and this is specifically the ones under Carl Lemly Jr.'s supervision. Here, he kind of saved Universal with some some big hits in like early 1940, like he did. Yeah. He produced *All Quiet on the Western Front*, which is now you know a huge war classic and won Best Picture that year. And then came in with, uh, or I said 1940, but I meant earlier, 1930. Mm. Uh, but <clears throat> And then he, he put a huge focus on monster movies here after the success of some of their silent ones they did, like the Lon Chaney films Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. And so they put a lot of, uh, as a young, you know, upcoming studio head here, he put a lot of stock in this venture, and it really paid off, especially, you know, in the beginning there with 1931, Dracula and Frankenstein were the biggest hits of that year. They were sensations, and they yeah. still are.
0: Um, it was interesting because they had decent success before with the... Uh, of with the opera and hunchback but then they went into a great you know the great depression and emerging out of that it was just an inspiring thing for the movies i think that we could have these big iconic um, new horror movies that kind of represented the fear of the times. So. Well, was it was one of the
1: first it was one of the first times that horror was really taken seriously as a genre mm. and so that's that's kind of why they've uh, maintained so well over the years is that they were taken very seriously and given Proper budgets you know frankenstein especially you can see in the production details there how much care was given into making this a genuine a picture
0: so i think i think an important aspect of them is that we get we get a lot of them that are coming from um they're coming from stage and books and these are developed stories but this is the cinematic idea of these creatures for the most part
1: yeah oh and that's i think one of the more interesting aspects we can kind of delve into here is that very much the uh the concepts we have of a lot of these characters you know well i'd say even all of them outside of the invisible man who's not really a halloween staple or anything but they're very much the iconography comes from these films Mm. you know the, the only reason the mummy exists as a is a kind of halloween or spooky horror property is because universal made this movie you know and it was kind of timely because of uh, the recent uncovering of king tut's tomb in the 1920s there mm-hmm.
0: so, um i think it's just interesting that these are the images that stayed there were many other versions of these movies made by other people and they all kept the imagery of this and i think should we start with dracula here
1: yeah makes sense to do dracula is the first one and it's interesting to note because like you said this wasn't even the first adaptation of dracula of course you know we're looking back at you know, uh, F. W. Murnau's Nosferatu in 1922 as the unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel that survived. Um, so this the is thing really, is that
0: you know, this Dracula would go back and take all the elements of that, right? And it would it would apply them to this. Um, and they got Bela Lugosi was already like playing this part on stage, I believe.
1: Yeah. So so this was uh, in Broadway. Dracula was a huge success. Bela Lugosi was leading it. You know, Hungarian-born actor. Uh, and the, his role was it, you know, is the Dracula was very interesting here because he took a very uh, romantic angle to it. Effectively, here he he addressed Dracula more as a lover character than a than a monster, and so that's what here his power really comes from. Here is that they they present him as an almost normal looking person. He's not, you know, covered in makeup or you know gr- grotesque features like any other previous vampires or later vampires would be. Or anything like that. He's presented as like a very professional looking well to do uh, fancy man.
0: And he doesn't drink wine.
1: Yes. <laughs> it's it's interesting. You gave the pause there like he does because that's an interesting thing in his performance. He, he adds these interesting pauses for effect like a proto William Shatner almost.
0: <laughs> yeah. And um, I think it works out well for him that I think I think he's so good in the part that Bela Lugosi became an icon because of this movie.
1: Yeah, and, and almost like it solely defined his career afterwards. This is basically the only thing that he was allowed to do for his entire life, but he does it so yeah, well. That's true. It's it's not a bad legacy to leave, as, as kind of sad as the rest of his story is. The performance here, I think he really shines as the best part of Dracula still. There's a lot of less savory aspects of the film, but I think it varies. Like... Um, the reception on Dracula kind of changes depending on who you ask. Some people like a lot of the extended silences of the film and think it adds to the creepy vibe, mm-hmm. whereas others are very put off by it and very perplexed. You know, as part of that 1930s transition from you know silent to sound films, there and the cumbersome. Uh, recording, you know, sync sound tech that they had to use. It didn't allow for much fancy camera moves or anything. Dracula plays a lot like if you just recorded the stage play.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of empty moments in there and a lot that could use sound.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's that's definitely I feel. The lack of score is a hindrance to me. Yeah. Like I said, it it works for some some people. Well,
0: what if you had this movie but an iconic score? I think it would be so significant.
1: Yeah, I, I can see how that might... Uh, certainly improve it considerably i think i've heard of versions with a score before what's also yeah. interesting about this one i haven't sought it out yet but there is a spanish version version of it as well they use the same sets and record it at nights instead during the production yeah to make a spanish language version of it
0: so funny thing like with the sets of course they're going to repeat through a lot of these movies and they're you know they're going to be on the universal stages and sets mm-hmm
1: so you get a lot of those reuse especially I and mean, there's lots of iconic bits of the set here like i when i think of track at all i always think about him that wide shot of him descending down the stairs mm-hmm. that very long you know extended take there which is a beautiful image i think and especially in how protracted it is
0: yeah and i love the way that the mansion looks and it has uh well it evokes the feeling of the book nicely i feel like it's a good space for it and I think they did okay with the limitations they had, but they limited themselves to the stage in some way.
1: Well, and that's always interesting. You bring up the book as well. Every uh, adaptation of Dracula is interesting because the book is so non-cinematic. You know, so you have huh. to you you have to invent the film effectively every time you adapt it in different ways. So well, every adaptation is like radically different in many ways.
0: Well, the book's so epistolary; it's all letters, and it would right. be hard. <laughs>
1: Like, it, w- it would be so boring to <laughs> watch like that. It's just voiceover dictating things, and you and you would get a little bit of action. Like, we got a little bit of that. We talked about it last week, where uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, he, you know, does a lot to adapt to those specific segments, you know, and he does that in very creative ways. But he mm. could not make a whole film out of that. That would be the most unentertaining thing you could imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be so hard to watch. Um those kind of books, the epistolary ones are always hard to adapt anyway because they're they're literally they're literally books of letters so. mm-hmm.
1: I guess you could look at them as kind of like uh how found footage kind of works in today. Mm-hmm. Like that's the same feeling you would get reading those as you would watching a found footage film, is that more it gives it a more grounded and realistic sense because you can suspend your disbelief to, to create this idea of how you would come across these these letters effectively.
0: Ultimately though, I I understand the iconic background of this, but I don't really like this movie that much.
1: It's it's not one that I return to as much. Again, I think the the most noteworthy thing is that Bella Lugosi is really great in it, but there's yeah the the long absences and the lack of some other characters uh, to really grasp onto make it not as entertaining to revisit over time i think uh i'm willing to give it more shots though i think that i i can refine a better appreciation for it for multiple viewings but you can certainly see how it paved the way and especially with the very gothic looking lighting and tone of the film how it really set the stage for all of the universal films to come it's its value as a the benchmark there is, you know, cannot be, uh, understated or overstated.
0: Yeah. Um, after that we got the James Whale Frankenstein, which is extremely on my shit, so that's good. Yeah. So
1: James Whale is basically the king of these universal films. He did, what, this Bride and Invisible Man, as well as another non-monster one called mm-hmm. The Old Dark House. Uh, so he really, like, was, you know, just the fantastic, uh, leader of the pack here i'd say
0: yeah i guess my biggest takeaway is that he's an incredibly underrated director he's doing some really significant things pretty early on this Uh, you wouldn't believe that this was like the same year right
1: yeah same exact year this came out at the end of 1931 and just blew the box office open it it was the highest grossing film of that year and it really made a sensation i mean you look at it uh I think, you know, one of the big things I take away is that this idea of Frankenstein as a big green monster with a square (laughs) forehead, like, unlike the kind of dandier outfit that Dracula wears, and we kind of now associate with the creature, like, Mm. this is the iconic vision of Frankenstein. It was created solely for film. I'm pretty sure none of those facets are exactly stated in Mary Shelley's novel. No, they're not. Um,
0: Yeah. I think the whole difference of this and Dracula is this isn't really based on the book, I this is more its own invention. It's not very faithful, but it's more cinematic. Uh, James Whale is able to adapt where he needs to, and he makes a much more sympathetic and kind of downtrodden monster. Whereas, like uh, the book's more like a response to like overreaching philosophy and romanticism and kind of what's going on within the culture. And this is more like a, a scientist created a monster, and here's uh, sort of his his part of that culture.
1: So this is actually it's kind of an interesting. Uh Facet here as well, and why Karloff was such inspired casting here, because you talk about that sympathetic aspect. Uh, Originally, uh, Bela Lugosi had screen tested for uh, Frankenstein here to be the monster, but he kind of ended up refusing because he. Oh, really? Yeah, he didn't want to. He he saw himself as a kind of romantic lead, a lover. He didn't he didn't view Dracula as a monster, like I really said there. And he didn't want a part. He felt like taking a part which had no lines would really be a downgrade from after his massive success.
0: Mm-hmm. I so can see it. it.
1: It didn't it didn't really matter because James Whale didn't want Lugosi to begin with because he didn't think he could do the role right. He saw karloff on set or not on set he saw him in the the cafeteria at universal studios one day and asked him to have coffee with him because he mm-hmm. saw you know the stature of him the size and uh what karloff did really communicate that makes the monster so great is this inherent sympathy he's almost basically the hero of the film you, you he's the victim in it all really you get this inherent sadness he doesn't want to be Reanimated, and that's really the sense you get there. Especially, you know, he he has this terrible feeling, throwing the girl into the lake and killing her there, to the river yeah. or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, it gets pretty dark. She's just playing around in the water, and he comes up yeah. on her.
1: Oh, and, that, uh, and they're they're I, they're kind of friends for a bit there. Yeah. Like he he makes a connection for a moment, but then like out of frustration or you know something, he he doesn't understand what he's doing, and he and he kills her <laughs> in this horrible way.
0: He just kind of tosses her in. It's like that one movie where John Wayne throws the boy in the right. water. He
1: just kind of I, I think about that because those images are almost exactly the same even than the the way they're facing they're facing yeah. the same exact way on the camera. And the way they
0: kind of just pick him up and like nonchalantly throw him in, I think there's a uh, overlap there.
1: Well, there's a good bit. I like the bit how they parody that in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, hmm. where in- instead of throwing him into a river, he like sits on a seesaw and he and she launches like across the field and right. l- l- lands through a window into her bed.
0: <laughs> right, it's just how extra that is. Um, I I was surprised when I entered Frankenstein because I had just come off Dracula and it was so stagey. And then this has so much cinematic technique. Uh, James Whale's not afraid to move a camera and not afraid to. Uh, frame a set and get really elaborate ideas and more of an ensemble cast. Um, and I feel like he's really confident with the. He's more confident in Karloff and allows him not to speak in this one.
1: Right. Oh, well, and he does such a great job. Karloff, such a great physical actor. One of the things that, uh, and you mentioned here, is a, a another big difference between this and Frankenstein is that there's actually more characters to connect to. Uh, in in Frankenstein than there is in Dracula, Uh, particularly in in the Doctor. Henry, uh, Colin Clive, you know, who plays the Doctor, is absolutely fantastic. So when we, you know, we're able to get through and watch and enjoy these early sequences before the monster is even brought on, like what, it's like halfway through the film or something, right? Right,
0: right. Yeah. I think that sets a tone for things. Like there are a lot of horror movie reveals now that happen about like a third or halfway in. I feel like Frankenstein sets like a entire pacing for these kind of horror movies that is really interesting and at that point unique to itself
1: and you have that really iconic you know just the the absolutely indelible image of you know uh, Henry rising the the platform up and yeah. you know getting the lightning strike and then and then <laughs> gleefully screaming how it's alive it's alive it's a it's a wonderful moment it's been parodied so much and it still works so so well it doesn't feel cheesy like I don't think the movie ever feels cheesy and I think that's kind of an important part of its staying power.
0: No, I mean I think it's straight and I think it's careful and sentimental. Um, I think after this, uh, I feel like we kind of go back to more like the Dracula form in the Mummy though.
1: Yeah, Um, uh, I I will have to say, I mean, I think James Whale is is what really compels me in the films, in these films here. I just wanted to say say that that Frankenstein is my favorite of the Universal Monster films, the first one here.
0: Sure, Um, I really loved it too. I think it's significant and it really sets a, I think this is the movie that essentially starts what we want from the monster movies.
1: This is what I think of when I think of Universal monster movies, and Frankenstein's the the benchmark. I think for just horror to come afterwards in general, it still remains a, a pillar of the genre.
0: But then after that, we got. <laughs> I feel like we took a step back again because we got uh, Carl uh, Frohensa, The Mummy. He, of course, took a. He shot a lot of Dracula, and he was given a. Um, well, whenever the director got bored, he was given the camera and basically shot parts of the movie that were the most effective. So Universal gave him his own movie, and it looks like a cinematographer movie. The first 15 minutes are very expressionistic and cool.
1: Yeah, I know that, you know, I was this is one of the ones I watched for the first time this year. And sure. I went in still with fairly low expectations, because everyone I know was kind of like, yeah, the mummy's kind of boring and not noteworthy at all. It's It's kind of... Uh, remarkable that uh, this is one of the only ones that didn't get a sequel until, like, the 50s or the, yeah, the late right. 40s. And by then, Karloff was far out of the picture. And I think that's because it's just a totally unremarkable film for the most part.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it's... Well, it's like an erotic romance. It's not quite a monster movie. <laughs> I mean, it's erotic romance with a monster in it, but it's not quite a horror movie in any sense.
1: Well, it's also not, like terribly monstrous it's not monstrous like frankenstein was like the mummy as we think of him with the bandages and everything that's solely in the opening segment of the film from there afterwards we have a kind of ghastly looking Karloff with more sunken eyes and a kind of dry looking skin to him throughout and uh and he's he obviously has this kind of menacing aura about him but he's not monstrous looking we do get to hear him like he gets to perform more in in terms of like dialogue which is nice because boris karloff has a amazing voice and you know you really get to see it in some of his later films of course he's famous for doing that uh you know the the grinch special which is fantastic but
0: yeah i don't even know like much about like mummy's one of the like horror stories i never really found out about edit I, I couldn't tell you if it's based on a book or if it has horror origins before this? Uh, it not, feels to uh, me like it just starts and it doesn't have the material that the last two did that that so elevate them.
1: It's entirely inspired by the idea that there was a an excavation in like the la- the five years preceding the film. It was the first major excavation, like the only one we've ever found with like a tomb intact. You know that wasn't robbed and that was King Tut's stuff so that was that was like in 1925 i think when that was uncovered and so that idea kind of sparked this idea like hey wouldn't this be cool to do and so they kind of scrambled this idea together like it wasn't it wasn't based on any previous material
0: yeah i guess just think at that point how exciting that would be i guess i mean if you could put yourself in that in that mind frame where you get imotep on the screen you see him coming out of the casket you've never seen this creature before Uh, i could see how that would be really fun in 1932 but in 2019, I mean, I'd even prefer the Brendan Fraser movies. Oh,
1: well, the Brendan Frasers, I mean, they, they do take a lot from this, obviously. It's the first time they bring emotep back as an entity. It's a different mummy in all the other films. Mm. But, um, you know, it's just it's got so much more going on. And especially just like character-wise, you put foundation so much more in there. They obviously, with this film, put all their money on Karloff being the great success he was uh, off the heels of Frankenstein. And then they got whoever here to be the like, just uncharismatic characters of the cast. I I think the thing that I can say is that, like, I didn't, like, hate The Mummy when I watched it. I didn't, like, dislike it, necessarily. No. I was just just kind of very uninterested, but, like, like, tonally and atmospherically, I'm like, this would be good to have on the background in a party, and I could, like, occasionally check in on it or whatever, but I don't know if I'd ever want to sit down and watch this completely. It just seemed very ineffectual to me
0: overall. Yeah, it was, um, and I, I want a strong romance that really means something, if it's going to be just that. There's an um,
1: idea to it there with this idea of Karloff's character having this, like he's trying to revive the woman he loved and that he yeah. was buried alive because of, for having this affection for. <laughs> There's an idea to that, but it because we're focused on the other, <clears throat> the other characters and not karloff trying to go through this his story is so much more of a kind of like a on the back burner idea here and not the focal point of the the film which it really needs to be
0: and again i just watched all the chucky movies so it was funny to be going back through and finding out like you know where these things are coming from like there are entire chucky movies that are the mummy or frankenstein or bride of frankenstein it's just like don mancini recreated those with a little puppet which is really fun for me
1: that's well, fun, the, the idea of the continuing legacy here of the Universal movies. That's why when they relaunched with the Mummy remake just a couple of years back, it was such an utter disappointment because this. I, the so idea of. Because really, the, the as they went on later in the series, the Universal monsters did kind of become the first Avengers, effectively.
0: I mean, I hate to say it. I feel about equal to the 2017 one. Um, really? I, yeah, I'd give them both about 5 out of 10.
1: Because uh, I've seen way worse ratings for the, uh, the, uh, the the 2017 one. That one was like a big piece of poo-poo, apparently, to most people.
0: <laughs> it was a nice date with my wife. I don't know why we both ended up liking it. I, I think everyone else in the theater was groaning. Um, I could go to like a... I really, really wanted this universe to come back, I think. I think I willed myself into there's... being like a gentleman's five on this.
1: Mm-hmm. There's still... There's still um... Invisible Working Man next year. Yeah, the Invisible Man, which also is appropriately the next film we have to talk about here.
0: Yeah, uh, God, I love this movie. <laughs> I was so uh, surprised.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. I've been very interested to hear your thoughts more in full because I also really enjoyed the movie, but you gave this, like, like masterpiece status when you talked about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I think Claude Rains is so inspired in this. Um, I think it's James Whale doing really cool shit. Like, even preceding... Like Citizen Kane, he's doing the stuff that people credit to that movie.
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff. Citizen Kane didn't re- didn't invent anything. and That's kind of an important thing to to note always. We just give Citizen Kane a lot of credit for putting all the pieces together and displaying in this magnificent yeah, form. It's, but it's
0: like we said about Gemini Man, right? It's not the movie that invents it no. or whatever. It's it's what popularizes it.
1: But specifically with the invisible man what it really I wouldn't even say it invented it it showcased the the greatest usage that you could have of uh matting here mm-hmm. which which effectively is a really cool technique they use to make him invisible and they, you know that's been used for a long period of time in film even back since the silent days matting has been a thing where you uh, and we talked about it briefly with uh, Dracula as well last year last week, uh, Coppola's Dracula, how they use similar techniques to you know put two things together in the frame and re-expose it.
0: so i'll just I'll just be honest i I've read this book, I love H G. Wells, of course, and I thought this would be impossible to adapt i I could not believe it i was I was totally blown away that they even got close.
1: Is it, is it similar at all to the book?
0: I think it's it's pretty close. It's been many years, but it, it kind of brought me back to what I like about Wells, because it's it's tricky, it's darkly funny, and it's kind of like playing with the audience in a fun way, um, because <laughs> there's so many deaths in this movie. Um, I, I have watched, I'm about on like 22 for my horror marathon. This has more deaths in it than all of those combined. It's <laughs> hilarious.
1: I think it's funny that you've been keeping track, but even more so that the Invisible Man is just this insanely amazing murderer that none of the other monsters are <laughs> he, I he mean, crashes he crashes a train full of people at one point and that's like 50 deaths <laughs> right there
0: i can stop laughing because the train goes fully off the tracks just out of nowhere it's like a it's like a montage of a killing spree like what is this in the 80s but it's like na- 1933 uh, yeah <laughs> and james well i just think it's hilarious. Like, i could feel his sense of humor in every shot and uh, especially claude rain's uh, god i really love claude rains uh, yeah i'm very claude enthusiastic
1: rains. claude rains is a great actor in general we've talked about him before we mm-hmm. gave him a lot of praise when we talked about notorious in particular but this was really his first big film i he was mostly a theater actor before this and so this really kind of came on and made him and that's really you know fantastic that it opened him up to hollywood like this but you're right this is so much more a comedy than any of the other films I, it's it's hardly even, like, I don't think about it as horror as much. It, it definitely feels comedic first. Like, they're having just a blast making this hilarious Invisible Man movie with cool special effects.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it has, like, the horror background, right? Like, there's some yeah, really yeah, fucked yeah, up still, shit happening. Like, it's this, still horror. This guy, so. <laughs> I mean, there's some, like, body horror in it even. Like, just losing your sense of body and becoming so manipulated by the change in your mind that you go on a killing spree. I mean, there's something in there, but I, I agree it's more a horror movie.
1: There's definitely a psychological aspect uh, to this idea, and I, it, sometimes it feels like they kind of tapped into that more, this this fear of like having entirely lost your sense of self, effectively, by right. being literally invisible. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. and so, some of that stuff could have been touched on more, but you can hardly fault the film when it's like, nah, we're just going to make it really fun instead. You've got to be like, okay, I'm fine with that too.
0: Uh, I, I just love the like the opening like the the couple freaking out in the in the building about what's going on and then that lady showing back up in our in our next movie here but uh, that's kind of remarkable is that the film
1: just opens up and it's like oh he's already invisible yeah we don't we don't actually see claude rains until the very end when he (laughs) dies otherwise it's just invisible the whole time
0: i feel like it'll be in contract for the next movie whoever plays invisible man that they have to be seen at least for like 30 percent right
1: but actually, I believe it was Vincent Price who actually took over afterwards, which is pretty cool.
0: Oh yeah, I I'm really excited to see some of the uh, follow-up movies, just because even if they're just campy and fun, I don't I don't care if they're as good as this because so, it would some be of the hard to up, be... Some of the follow-up movies look really interesting, particularly yeah.
1: uh, I, I intend to eventually take out, check out *Son of Frankenstein*, which is the next one after mm-hmm. that, uh, because it does bring Karloff and uh, Lugosi together. Lugosi actually plays Igor in that movie, which is really cool.
0: Um, so, who do we have? We have a... We don't know who will be the invisible man in the next movie, do we?
1: Uh, I I believe it's Vincent Price, like I said. Oh, oh, you mean the new one coming Yeah, yeah, next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I... I know last time when they talked about it, it was like Johnny Depp was supposed to, but I don't know if that's still the case. I am researching
0: now... Looks like uh, Elizabeth Moss is attached. It's going to be directed by the guy who did Upgrade last year, and I can really feel how fantastic that could be. It's not...
1: Yeah, nobody's listed for the part. It's very hush here. I know it's supposed to be like a a combined production now with Blumhouse. Like, they're like, Here, take this and do something better with it than we can.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think they need to set it up like a Marvel Universe where everything's crossing over. I just hope they could establish these separate movies and, you know... I I really wish the mummy took off. I thought that was the wrong property to start with for sure. Hmm.
1: Uh, I did want to ask though before we get off of Invisible Man here. Uh, do you actually know how the effects were done in the film?
0: Um, I had read a little bit about it. Like, uh, I mean, I could imagine they're matting and they're taking like two copies and then overlapping them, right?
1: Well, here let me let me tell you how it's done because it's actually it's pretty cool. So obviously it's a whole costume when he's just covered up completely, so Claude Rains can still move around and stuff. But when they remove part of the outfit, what they do is that Claude reigns underneath the costume is in a complete black leather, uh, black mm-hmm. not leather, uh, black velvet outfit, and there's a black velvet drape in the background. So effectively, what's going on there is that you're exposing the camera uh, to light only reflecting off of the the costumes there and then what you do is you roll the film back and you re-expose it to the background and so all the black parts that you caught there on film are now exposed to light so it basically renders them
0: invisible invisible right and i think that's so brilliant because it can't possibly age because there's nothing there to age
1: it does look it looks absolutely brilliant still and then there's a lot of fun with like just regular puppetry effects work to move props around when he's completely invisible and, and naked
0: just the first time he undoes the rap i think my jaw just dropped okay. i was like oh my god you don't I didn't know enough about to, this
1: yeah you don't expect that effect to hold up nearly as well as it does it's better than even some modern green screen does cause at least you, <laughs> you still feel it's there the background you know he feels separated from the background i think still but not enough to like kind of take you out it's still incredibly impressive
0: i'm sure Moby pick it up on a lot I, I already saw two movies this week that are influenced by this so. Uh, Nightmare Horror Radio and another short film I can't remember the name of.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've got one more film to talk about here, real quick, uh, and that's the the one sequel in our first run here, which is Bride of Frankenstein, generally considered the best of the horror films, the benchmark here. Though I'm not quite as high on it as the original Frankenstein myself.
0: I could definitely see why it is, and um, I think the Bride of Frankenstein. Especially, is a lot closer to the source material, so I think you get a lot closer to Mary Shelley's intention, for sure. Uh, I, I think it, it doesn't worry as much about the sympathy, and it becomes more of a story about the creators here.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because the film literally opens up with Mary Shelley and this kind of mock yeah. uh,
0: fourth wall working
1: sequence. Where she's basically like, oh, well, that's not the end of the story. Would you like to hear more? And
0: it's fun because she's sitting there with like Lord Byron and the other guy I can't remember. And they're talking about like what, what, what would they do if they continue the Frankenstein? And I think what they do is they bring it a little closer to the book by telling a new creation story.
1: Yeah, to to me, when I watched it, I think I maybe went in with wrong expectations and could like it more a second time because for a film called Bride of Frankenstein, there's almost no bride.
0: Um. Yeah, I think it's I think it's confusing. It's like the bride that Frankenstein creates, right? It's, um, it's
1: very misleading because the bride, the iconic reveal of her with the crazy hair like that, she only shows up in the last five minutes.
0: Yeah. And it's not even Frankenstein's Bride, because Frankenstein's not the monster, obviously.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's always been the confusing nomenclature of this here, is that Frankenstein is not the name of the creature. Frankenstein is the name of the doctor.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think it's really interesting to me. I guess what I picked up on is uh, James Wells is, is very gay, of course. And uh, yeah, yes. that, that rarely shows up in these this era of movies, especially 30s, uh, right after Great Depression, you're coming off the war, and here's this guy making uh, horror movies that are a little bit gay about two men creating something together, and uh, in some sense, like a male pregnancy. <laughs> it's very uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's
1: an interesting commentary there that may have been intentional. I can certainly see it potentially being that, and it's interesting with the uh, Dr. Pretorius' character coming in, the mentor to Frankenstein. And I mean, he's got those, like, <laughs> he's got that weird comedic, like, he's got these these... Dancing people in bottles when he's first introduced. Yeah,
0: they're very weird.
1: Yeah, it's, it's,
0: uh, yeah, he has them in these. What would you call them? Just like these jars of, <laughs> like these mason jars of <laughs> little people. That's a cool effect for back then too.
1: It is. It's it's just odd. It's like, ah, oh, what's this mean? I don't know why we're doing this.
0: And his his thing, the Pretorius, is that he could never get people to be right size, right? So he wants to combine his will with Doctor Frankenstein and create a. Right size monster that could you know really in- improve something scientifically.
1: Hmm. Uh, I think what what really endeared me about the film, what I what I like about it, is all of the specifically Frankenstein stuff because we get even more of him exploring who he is and what he gets. Uh, especially like the scenes like what he's got that great sequence with the the blind hermit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and is, he hears he him talk there, which is very strange. Uh,
1: you know. But to uh, me, I mean, that
0: stuff's in the book, so.
1: To me, it makes sense. I'm okay with him talking. Boris Karloff famously thought it was stupid to make the monsters talk, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is I mean, fair. I think it's a fair take because that's what worked really well about the first film. But as far as for progression of the character goes, I think it makes sense that he would develop that skill.
0: Yeah, um, I just I don't really want him to talk, I, but yeah, I understand why he needs to for this story.
1: I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair either way there. To, to me, it, it makes sense as a logical progression because it's still very rudimentary, you know, vocal skills. Like, he's just barely a, a, uh, able to utter more words. It, it just shows to me that he's he's learning and becoming that more human while still being very monstrous. And he's beginning to realize, you know, he he's as he grows, he more so realizes how... Uh, non-existent. Like, he, he should not be alive, effectively, and that's kind of how the film sends off as well.
0: I mean, it's not like he's delivering crazy dialogue, right? He's just like... No. Uh, he's just saying, like, friend, or, you know, ah, like... Uh, yeah, me
1: want Me want woman or whatever it is. It's, it's like very <laughs> caveman-y kind of talk. And it makes sense. I think, like, if if you had to make the monster talk, that's exactly the way you would want to do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel pretty uh, good about this one. I, I liked it more than the first one. Definitely.
1: Did, did you? I think that's interesting. Because uh, I had the impression otherwise that I thought you were on my side of this.
0: <laughs> um. Well, though, I, re- I just really enjoyed Bride of Frankenstein. I thought it was really nice.
1: No, I mean you're not wrong. Again, I'm I'm more so in the minority in thinking that the original is better. I I I think when I went to see Bride of Frankenstein, I had mixed i had a mixed up expectation and that threw off my viewing i'm sure with an additional viewing i might feel differently but i feel they, either way they make good companion pieces like i feel like you can't have one without the other
0: well i should say that i mean i think i'm with you like subjectively i think i I prefer frankenstein but i i think there's just a lot more going on in this Uh, i mean i think i rated frankenstein a little bit higher but
1: right again they're 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 close and, and and i think they work Functionally together, like I said, as companion pieces, they they play off each other both very well, and it's a great expansion. It's generally considered one of the only sequels that surpasses the uh, mm-hmm. original in, in some manner.
0: Sure, um, yeah, I I think so. I mean, again, like I I just watched Bride of Chucky and had a great time, and then I watched this. I was like, oh shit, that's 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 where everything comes from.
1: Bride of Everything is great. We should watch the Ed Wood film Bride of the Monster no. <laughs> and see how much better <laughs> that is. It's got Lugosi, though. It's a, it comes full circle. Possibly. <laughs> but no, That's uh, that's effectively that first run there, like I said, with uh, under Carl Lemley Jr.'s direction all the way up through Bride. At about that point, 1935, things tapered off a bit and we got less well-performing sequels in Dracula's Daughter and Son of Frankenstein. They stopped stopped for a bit, and things picked up a bit more when they brought in Lon Chaney Jr. and did The Wolfman. Uh, But I think that's about all we want to discuss of these guys for now. Uh, Maybe in the future we'll look at other monster
0: movies. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could go back to like the Chaney and Chaney Jr. stuff, but I feel like it's a... I feel like this is the coverage we really want to do about it, so we should do what we really want to. And yeah, for me, this first
1: I- block, I think the first block is what people think of when they think of the Universal Monster movies. It's these five films in particular that kind of defined that concept.
0: For me, it's like these and then Creature like 20 years later right well yeah creature
1: is like so far off so it's not it's not as relevant to talk about though it does get lumped in this that that and wolfman get lumped in with the same package here even though these were so distinct and under the the guidance of a particular ideal
0: yeah i think it shows that the people don't don't exactly matter after they get you know as long as the influence is there and they they have good people behind them they could replicate it later
1: Yeah, and and that's why it worked for so long for the studio and why it still works. These films still hold up and they've become, you know, a legacy of their own. They've become as iconic as anything else that's come out of Hollywood. You know, particularly, I think Frankenstein is one of the iconic images of movies, and so much so that we forget that he's from a movie.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I mean, all of our Halloween imagery and everything is taken from these movies. It's it's so significant that we have an entire holiday basically based. Based around the characterizations of these movies.
1: Yeah, of of these particular movies, it informs the entire iconography of this this whole holiday. So it only felt appropriate to tackle these films and kind of explore uh, how they've held up. I thought it was a very fun exercise here.
0: All right. Good job, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right.